0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Christopher Moore, author of Dirty Job and its sequel, Secondhand Souls. Chris sat with us for an interview recently, and then he invited his fans to ask questions via Facebook and Twitter. And he's joined us again today to answer those questions. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. All right, so I've got uh, several questions for you. I'm going to start with a very easy one. And it's from Jillian Kenyon, who asks, what are you reading now?
1: Oh, let's see. Right now, I just started Savages by Don Winslow, and I've been reading a lot of uh, of noir from the 20th century, really. I'm I'm reading a book called, um, I think it's called The Best uh, Noir Stories from the 20th Century, uh, edited by James Elroy and uh, Otto Prenzler, I want to say. Those are are the the two that I can think of. There's also another one called Dark Passages by... um, David Goodis, who is uh, sort of a um, along the lines of Raymond Chandler and those guys, uh, noir uh, and Jim Thompson, a, a noir writer from the nineteen forties, very famous. That was a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movie that was uh, filmed here in San Francisco, Dark Passage. And I wanted to see what uh, what it looked like in print.
0: Mm. And similarly, Amy Berry wonders. Who are your, your current favorite authors in books? Do you, do you tend to move from one author to the next kind of thing?
1: Well, you know, over the years you develop, a, you know, a sort of a crew of, of people that you just look for what their next book is going to be. Um, the new ones that I've discovered is a, a guy named Michael Logan who wrote a, a book called Apocalypse Cow. <laughs> and, um, and the sequel, I can't remember what the sequel is, but it's a World War Moo <laughs> um, uh, he's he's uh, a Scottish fellow who lives in Nairobi, a, a journalist, and uh, he won the Terry Pratchett Award uh, a couple of years ago for Apocalypse um, Cow, and so he's interesting. I just read Juliana Baggett's uh, book Pure, which was terrific. I think it was supposed to be young adult, but it's you know dark and destructive and really well written. Um, so I'm a new fan of hers and. Uh, that's kind of about it for new authors um, that, that have come up. And then, you know, the old standbys. A lot of the guys I like have died, like Elmore Leonard. So I'm not really waiting for their next one. But uh, I always read uh, when Carl Hyacinth has something out, or Dave Barry, or any of the uh, David Sedaris, anybody who writes funny stuff. I always try and r- read the new stuff.
0: What what percentage of your day is spent reading versus writing?
1: less and less as as media and cringes, I'm i'm mm. sort of looking forward to having lunch with my writer friends when i'm on tour um uh, coming up because i want to ask them about this is that i obviously I, l- I love to read that's what led me into being a writer but as you know you're always one click away even now with the you know if you're reading on a device you're one yeah. click away of something that's easier and more passive and and uh Shinier than than reading, so I'm I'm sort of chagrined at how little I read, compared to how much um, I might be writing, and and I, not just how much I might be writing, but as as how much I might be consuming other media, whether it be games or, you know, series, television, or yeah. movies, or or you know some garbage like that that's just sort of passively fed through your eyeballs or reading, you know, crap on the internet. I mean, is that reading? That's sort of like I I used to count, you know, writing every day was uh, if I wrote in my journal that was writing, you know, but, you know, I may answer 20 emails. Is that writing? I don't know. Um, (laughs) And uh, so so the actual formal time spent writing when I'm on a manuscript probably exceeds the amount of time reading, but on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis, I probably... I probably read an average of an hour to an hour and a half a day, which is down from, you know, maybe twice that um, 10 years ago.
0: All right. Now, Steve Keat wonders, how much of an influence was Terry Pratchett?
1: None at all. Strangely enough, I think, uh, I think it surprises people. I didn't read any of Terry's books until... About 1999, I started my career, I I wrote my first book in 1990, and it came out in 1992. So I had, I think, five books out before I read any Terry Pratchett book. And I read Good Omens, which he wrote with Neil Gaiman, because Avon Books was flying Neil Gaiman and me and Bill Fitzhugh to New York to to, to launch some popular fiction or pop book line like goat head or some stupid thing and so they brought the three of us to New York and I thought well I better read this guy's book so the only I think the only book Neil had out at the time novel was was Good Omens and he had done it with Terry and uh, so I hadn't read any Terry Pratchett books probably until I had six maybe seven books in print and then uh, a bookstore in Minneapolis wanted me to sign I don't know six or seven hundred of first editions of my first book that had been remaindered and they said we'll pay you for it. And I said no, you don't have to pay me for it. And they said we'll give you credit. So I said okay, send me all of Terry Pratchett's oh, stuff that's and all funny. of all of Tom Holt stuff and all of Neil Gaiman's uh, uh, graphic sure. novel stuff because I that wasn't a genre that I followed. And uh, and so then I read a bunch of Terry's stuff and I just I I, I, I didn't find it relevant because by the time I discovered it I would already sort of found my own voice and so forth and and he definitely d- did his own thing. I I do prefer in the last year, I've read uh, two of his young adult novels, Nation and Dodger. And yep. I, w- I much prefer those to yeah, the, disc, the the Discworld books, which always seemed like clever people chatting with not a whole lot of storyline to me. And maybe that's because I didn't come into them as they came out. Right. But, uh, but he really seemed to be a much more rich writer in those two books than he was in, in uh, the Discworld series to me.
0: That's interesting. Now we have a couple questions, um, one from Stacy and another from Amy, related to sequels and, and in particular coyote. How, how do you feel about sequels and 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 similarly about revisiting characters?
1: Well there's there's very few books there's a few books that I have set open for sequels. Um, And my first vampire book, Bloodsucking Fiends, I had always planned on doing a sequel, but my publisher at the time had had done such a miserable job of releasing it. And you can't do, they only printed 9,000. You can't do a a (laughs) sequel to a book that printed 9,000 because no one has read it. Um, So it was 12 years before my career uh, recovered enough for me to be able to do a sequel (laughs) to that book. But other books like Coyote are are really only envisioned as complete one-offs. And, and um, if I do a sequel to a book like that, like for instance, Dirty Job and Secondhand Souls. Dirty Job was conceived as a, as a single entity, a solo book. And I've only gone back to do a sequel because of the demand, you know, and people saying, you know, why don't you write another one? Please write another one. And they love the characters. And, and it's set where I live in San Francisco, so, so research is easy for me. Um,
0: See now you've opened the floodgates though people think uh, yeah if just, well if they uh, just beg long enough well it'll but happen. but
1: but there's <laughs> just you know I can just say there, I'm just not going to write a sequel to Lamb unless I'm just starving and living in an un, uh, uh, you know under an overpass in a cardboard box and and then maybe okay I I will write a sequel to Lamb but at this point I don't want to do that Coyote is the same way it, it stands on its own and also now it's been you know twenty four twenty five years since yeah, I wrote Coyote. So so trying to revisit those characters after so long, um, I'm not sure it would it would work. I'm a different person and uh you know, the I write about the Crow Indians and the Crow Reservation. And that's changed completely since I was there. Um because they brought in casinos and the you know, the per capita income of everybody on the reservation went up by probably a thousand percent since I was there. So um there's a lot of them that, that they just don't work in that respect. Um, there are characters that I've created that carry on that I would, you know, I have pocket, which I created uh, for Fool, which was King Lear done from the the Fool's point of view. I really like writing him, and I have the all of Shakespeare's canon to write him into. It only takes a, a mm-hmm. little bit in of inventi- inventiveness to get him you know, into the next story, so I've already put him in Othello and Merchant of Venice in Serpent of Venice, and, and I would definitely revisit him, but um, there's just some, you know, when you write the greatest story ever told, which is what Lamb is, there's nowhere to go with down, so yeah, if you do a sequel, you're done, you know, yeah. and I tell people that, because people <laughs> always want a sequel to that, and they say, yeah, you know what you're going to say, you're gonna go. Oh, I liked it, yeah, I but liked it wasn't song. as good as Lamb. Yeah, you know. This, so there's a no win for me in that respect, and and I totally understand that I want more of this feeling. I certainly have that when I read a, uh, you know, get attached to characters I really like, or, you know, when uh, you know there's a movie I really like or something like that. So I get that. But but from the point of view of the artist, uh, if I can be pretentious enough to refer to myself that way. You don't want to write the same book over and over again. No, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to do that. It's. It's. Then I might as well have a real job. Um, if I'm just going to. Well, I'm, I mean, seriously, <laughs> no, that I you you, mean. you work very hard as a as an author. Um, to get paid. I mean, for me, it was a get paid to do what I love to do. And if I'm just doing a rote task, it doesn't seem like I'm really fulfilling that goal. Um, and so I don't. You know, I didn't. I'm not writing Practical Demon Keeping 27. It's not to say that people aren't wildly successful to do, you know, yeah, in there doing are some that. that. do, do that, yeah. um, But but I have uh, I don't know if my attention span would handle sort of that fill in the blank uh, outline formula making and and which isn't to say that that's always the case with sequels. I I found writing Secondhand Souls was harder than writing a dirty job. Because there were so many balls in the air already, and Dirty Job, I had 400 pages to sort of create this world and reveal it to the reader, and in Secondhand Souls, it was all up and running. And yeah. so I just <laughs> was like, Oh my God, this is sort of like a a lot of plates spinning at one time, and and so it wasn't easy. Um, so you know, I, I don't want to imply that it's always easy to do Hand Soul or to do a, a sequel, but it's it's often repetitive.
0: Yep. Um. Now Regina Allen. Asks about movie adaptations, and in the middle of her question, she she expresses ambivalence. She sort of w- wants a movie adaptation of your works, and then she's worried that they're going to, you know, not stand up to the imaginativeness them, yeah. of, of your of of the original work. So, do you share Regina's ambivalence about uh, movie adaptations?
1: I think so. I, I it so much of it depends on the talent of the people that are involved and how much or little, they're stepped on by people who aren't talented. Um, and I my first book sold for a movie before it sold as a book. And uh, so I've been living with this, what's it going to be like thing for a lot of years. And, and, you know, I've learned to not get excited about it. But I think what really uh, sort of made me realize don't get too excited about it is when they made uh, after years and years and years of trying, they they finally made the movie of uh, Tom Robbins. Even cowgirls get the blues, mm-hmm. and so many people loved that book, and it was an iconic sort of I don't know counterculture book of the of the '70s and '80s, and um, and it was a horrible, horrible movie done by a very talented director, Gus Van Sant, and so you think, well, how you know how did that happen? And, and Robbins, to his credit, said, look, I, the book is what I did and and what Gus did was his interpretation of it and they're two different pieces of work and I thought it was a very sort of healthy philosophical way to look at it, but it made me think that would have been a movie much better not made and yeah. sometimes I feel that about my own stuff. I mean, it's always great to hear that some director that you like is, is interested in it or you know, some actor that you like is interested in your work and and uh, virtually all my books, except the last couple, have uh, have sold for film, yeah. have been optioned. You know, some of them, Coyote Blues, been optioned like six or seven times by different people. Um, but y- you just sort of back off and go, well, we, you know, I, it's not so much you'd like to see a movie made; it's like it's you'd like to see a good movie made. Right. And um, uh, I just read a script for one of my books, and I won't, I don't want to embarrass the the people who wrote it, but they wrote it on spec, which is sort of brave I guess because they can't do anything with it without my permission and it's kind of awful yeah. you know and I feel horrible the first thing is you don't want to tell anybody oh it's kind of awful um, but it's also something you you can't back it I can't say yes I think you should take this to Paramount and see if they'll make this awful movie Right. so so yeah I am a little bit am- ambivalent about it I'd love to see a, a, a good movie made of, of Fool or a good movie made of Lamb or a good movie made of, of uh, actually Lamb I think would be it's a series. I, I've never thought it would be a, a mm. good movie. I thought it was, it would be. You end up much more. Not to go down this rat hole, but I think novels lend themselves much better to to series television than they do to to film, especially sort of rich, multi-location uh, novels. And and I think a good example of that is if you look at the the movie Dune. It's just too much book, with too much concept. Um, for a movie and so the movies that have been made from it are kind of awful yeah. um, and, and yet you look at what uh, HBO has done with Game of Thrones where you take these big complex books with a lot of scenes and it, and it very much lends itself to that. It's a great way of telling that story and, I, and that's how I sort of feel with, with mm-hmm. some of, of my books is that they don't really fit conveniently in a three-act screenplay and lamb would certainly be one of those. But uh, yes, the short the short answer is <laughs> I do feel ambivalent about it, but I you know, don't mind it if they buy me a house or something. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> That's an even trade-off. Now, Lindsay Decker via Facebook talks about how she taught a dirty job um, in college as an uh, part of an interpretation of fiction course, and she says that the students that read and analyzed the books said that they felt differently about death after having read the book. Um, she qu- she wonders if you if you're conscious of and what your feelings are about having serious subjects underneath these more humorous thoughts.
1: Um, yeah, you know, I'm absolutely conscious of it. I'm absolutely conscious of it. The, 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 certainly, when I set out to write a dirty job, um, I. Decided. I think we may have talked about this last time. I, yeah. I had been taking care of my dying mother and my wife's dying mother, and I thought I, I, I've learned something about this and dealing with this and seen things, and uh, I think maybe I have something to say. And but the way I happen to say things is is with humor.
0: And how do you maintain that that balance but of that tension between this, the humorous and the serious? Sh- she wonders.
1: Um, I don't know if there if there's a, a method to the madness I think you just take it as far as you can and maybe sometimes I go over the line I mean a dirty job you know spoiler in the first chapter uh, a young woman who's just given birth to a baby dies you know and she's and I think she's in enough pages that you, you're you attached to her and all of a sudden she, she dies and so there's I think a palpable sense of loss or I wanted there to be and that may have not been the wisest choice in the, in you know as far as of uh, Leading someone emotionally into a comedy, but um, <laughs> you you know you you get to make your own rules, which is one of the great things about writing novels. and you you hope that you can keep things within a credible level of people's tolerance. I mean, I personally have trouble with not having a character that I like or can root for. And that's been been a big dialogue lately. I've seen in, you know, the New York Times book review and so forth, where people say, Oh, you don't need to have that. You can hate everybody and it's okay. And I personally that's fine, but I'm not gonna finish the book. Yeah. Or finish watching the series or finish watching the movie. If there's not someone that has some redeeming moral character that I can I can, you know, be on their side, I don't I'm not interested in it. And so I try to always have that for the reader to identify with. Now as far as how serious you can go, and uh, you know, nothing's really off limits, uh, you know. But but I'll stop if I think, well, that's that's too dark to be funny. Yeah. Um. And it's not my intent. It doesn't illuminate anything. It doesn't say anything by being dark. But you know, there are a couple of moments dealing with. I think even in my goofy vampire books, there's a couple of moments where the characters are dealing with homeless people, in San Francisco, and and they get pretty. Sa- it gets pretty sad, pretty quick. Um, but that's sort of f- on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't tell you, there's no formula f- for it. I mean, it's something that you just feel. It's uh, intuitive. Uh, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it feels more like you're making a, a sculpture than th- and you're sort of doing these really incremental uh, shapings of the clay rather than, okay, it's you know four pages of, of happy, now I'm gonna have some sad. <laughs> you
0: know. Now, Lindsay also wonders what your thoughts are on being taught in a college course. How do you feel about that?
1: I was really surprised when it started happening, but but I th- I think um uh, I think it's dep- it, a lot of it depends on the context. Uh, one of the things that I set out to do when I started writing was to write books that were fun to read, and I think that we are often taught books that aren't fun to read as we're growing up, or we're given books that are easy but not necessarily good, um, to sort of fill in that gap of, you know, slogging through five hundred pages of you know Henry James or something like that. and um so so i'm I'm delighted that that people want to teach my books to if they sort of want to bring the joy of reading and and, you know, I guess literature with a big L. Although I d- I've never considered that what I do, um, I I think I I learned that when I learned that Lamb was being taught in seminaries, you know, my comedy yeah. about the life of Jesus that was that was sort of touched me because that yeah. was something that I was I was very concerned with. You know, we talked about having the balance, but to write about what is the religion for a third of the people in the world and to do it in a humorous manner, but tr- but not piss them off. I guess it's uh, yeah. it's the short way. Not alienate um, them. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, it wasn't. It was never meant to be an attack book. It was meant to be the story of two friends and to to have people who teach religion uh, to people who are going to you know be the carriers of that religion teach it in in their colleges. That impressed me. I felt good about that. I'm I I think it's. I would almost like to sit on a, on. Um, classes where they deconstruct my stuff because I've always thought that um, deconstructive the deconstructive me- method of literature of studying literature is, you know it, it does illuminate you understand it, but it's not how you put a book together right that's and that's, interesting. Al- yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. always the that's always the assumption I think that's made by lit professors. And I think it's how they ruin a lot of young writers is they they somehow make you think that oh yeah, all of this symbolism uh, and an underlying allegory was in place when the writer started to put this and he just had to figure out the best way to bring it out. And it's like, no, that's not how you do it. That's right. not how it's done. It's not put together with, with that. I mean, no, which is not to say that you don't have themes in mind, but uh, you're, you're much more a, a prisoner of the story than, than they make it out to be. And a lot of times you're doing what you're, what you're doing for completely dramatic reasons, rather than than some underlying uh, meaning or underlying message that you have, it, it just deconstruction and construction of the stories are, are two different things. And so, mm. I'm only conflicted in that people try to uh, extrapolate my process by looking at the work. Rather than just looking at the work and defining it itself, and and you know, I'm so the short answer, which I probably should have gone right to, is I think it's great that they're <laughs> teaching that they're teaching my books. Um, I just don't want anybody to ruin somebody who is aspiring to write by using my stuff as an example of you know this is how you do it. Um, I'm I'm not sure that it's going to work for a lot of people.
0: Now, a related question from Patty Marvel is. Uh, was there a teacher who inspired you to write or was there one that was so discouraging or, or just sort of rude about it that you you made up your mind that you were going to show that person
1: yeah I, there there was in high school I had a. Uh, I mean I I had wanted to write before this I started I started thinking about wanting to write when I was about 11 or 12 but I was I think a senior in high school and I had taken an advanced composition course as a, as a junior in high school from this one teacher and then I signed up for her creative writing class uh, the next year. And um, And on her opening day, you know, as she's sort of going through this the syllabus, she said, you know, there are people, you know, there's certain uh, character aspects that people have to become Uh, uh, professional writers and some people have it and some people just don't like Chris Moore I mean (laughs) out of 30 people in this (laughs) class on the first day she singles me out as being the one that doesn't have what it takes to be a professional writer and I was like okay so I like to mention every time I visit my hometown and they interview me as the only professional writer to have come out of that school ever ever yep um I like to mention her name That's and tell good. that story. Um, Louise Rosen, may you burn in hell. There you go. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so there was that. Um, and and then I had I had a really great teacher as um, in my early twenties, named Shelley Loenkoff, who's still around, who uh, who taught at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, which is where I encountered him. But but you know, he sort of made his living teaching the professional writing program at USC and it's um, just a brilliant, brilliant teacher who who sort of uh, he was one of these teachers who would tell you stuff, and then two years later you would go, Oh, that's what he was talking about um uh, you know when you were actually ready to learn what he was trying to tell you and and he at the t- at the time i mean I think Shelley changes his focus from t- time to time as as he delves into storytelling and so forth and and tries to teach it, but at the time he was really focused on character, and I think that his and I, you and I talked about it at the last time is in creating characters. His uh, sort of method of of going after creating characters and giving every character his own agenda and his own personality and his own space in the world. Uh, I think it it's informed my writing and really really helped people relate to what I do. You know, I, the, I can get away with doing a lot of really goofy stuff because people like the characters and, and want to find out what's going to happen to them. And I attribute a lot of that to what I learned from Shelley Lowenkopf.
0: That's nice. Now, Walter and I want to know, do, when, you, when you write a book and when you finish it, do you, do you tend to have a favorite character? Walter wants to know specifically if you have one for uh, practical demon keeping.
1: I, I, oh yeah, I, t- I tend to, not always, but I, I, there's parts, when you're writing a book, especially if it has a multiple, a, a big cast, and, and Practical Demon Keeping for a fairly short book has a lot of cast, uh, a lot of people in it, and it's a multi-point of view book, so the, each chapter you, you move to a different person's point of view. Um, but when I would get to certain characters, and when I get to certain characters where I get to write that character, I'm sort of like, oh, this is going to be a good day. Um, and uh, certainly in that the demon catch is terrific um, and, and my favorite. And I, I actually bring it back in Lamb. Um, you know, we talk about sequels. A lot of it is like, well, I, I have this demon that's not doing anything, and I need a monster <laughs> in this part of the book. So, so um, he was definitely my favorite from, from Practical Demon Keeping. And he was the inspiration for Practical Demon Keeping because I invented the character wow. long before I wrote the book. I was uh, when I was a kid um, and just I had, you know, my first car and I would drive around, you know, it, at night by myself listening to, you know, Springsteen on the tape player with my jaw clenched, you know, sort of staring into the existential abyss of my windshield in Ohio winter, you know, and I'd get stopped by the cops all the time because really you must be up to something, right? right. You're just a kid out riding driving by yourself. And I, they would search my car, and there was never anything in my car for the search. But they would sort of hands on the hood, and then they'd search my car every time. And I always wow. wanted to. And I always wanted to say, "Don't reach under the seat." And they would say, "Why?" And I go, "Because there's a big monster under there." And you know, there was just this sort of kid revenge of I'm just being sort of jerked around by these cops. And my dad was a cop. Yeah. So I really should. You know, I I really kind of knew that this was, not probable cause, as it were, um, but you can't, my dad had also taught me don't argue with them. Uh. Yeah, very important. <laughs> uh, yeah, as, as we've all learned, um, our, our learning uh, currently, but uh, so I, that's where Catch came from, was just being able to have this, you know, uh, the absurdity of underneath the seat of the car was this big monster that would eat you, and so I sort of made that, I don't know, like, 17, 18 years later, I made mean, that come to life in in the book. So he definitely is my, that's a really long answer to what's your favorite yeah, character, but, but he's defi- definitely my favorite character from Practical Demon Keeping.
0: That's a great story. Now, Bell and Mr. B want to know, do you have any living pets and skellers don't count?
1: I have two ex-pets that are living, I think are living. Um, when what? I sold my house in Hawaii, well, here's the thing. David Byrne says, uh in the little book that comes with Stop Making Sense, um, the live album, he says, uh, cats like houses better than they like people. And I had a place in Hawaii that was right on the edge of about, I don't know, a thousand acres of jungle. And um, and I had these two little cats that had come in out of the jungle and, and adopted us and lived on the lanai. They never came in the house, but they were definitely our pets, and you know, we took them to the vet and did all the stuff that you're supposed to do, but they adopted us. And they lived, you know, in, you know, one of them, the male would just disappear into the jungle for two days and then come back when you were all distressed and look at you like, what? <laughs> um, so when, when we were moving from, when my wife and I moved from Hawaii to San Francisco, we sold the house and, and we asked the people as part of the contract to adopt the cats and take care of them because they weren't going to do well in the that city. That is so you funny. Know? And so they're still there and we occasionally get updates do on them. Do you get them. updates? Yeah. Yeah, but um, but so yes, the short answer is I have living pets somewhere. Somewhere but, in Hawaii, but not yeah, but not with me. And since I've been in the city, because I do travel for you know for work a lot, um, a- having pets isn't really practical for me. You know, I, I dog or cat, I d- a dog is just almost a full time job in the city because you have to walk them yep. and stuff like that. And yep. it's like uh, that's what you how you want to spend your life. That's fine, but I have enough. Reasons to not write. Having to take the dog out for a walk every three or four hours is not one I need to add to it.
0: <laughs> All right, and our final question via Facebook from Terry leshe's My granddaughter's first word was "kitty." Should I be concerned?
1: I don't think so. I <laughs> I think you're fine. Those, you know, spoiler alert. That's uh, that's one of the things that Sophie says in A Dirty Job that turns out to to really have on. Un- a lot more dire consequences than most little kids saying it, but uh, but I like that people associate that. I thought the, the the whole idea of having this cute little kid saying this innocuous <laughs> thing the way little kids do, and having it kill people, um, was, uh, was 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 a fun construct that that I. I enjoy, and I play with it in secondhand souls a little bit, too.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but no, I think she's fine.
0: I'm glad to hear that. It would have been a sad way to end if you'd said, yes, you need to you need to seek help immediately. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but have that child's vocal cords removed.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Christopher Moore, author of The Hilarious Dirty Job and the Equally Delightful Secondhand Souls, thank you so very much.
1: Thanks a lot for doing this.
0: Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.